Physics agreed that if it would only learn to control its thunder, it would be, in years to come, a storm to watch. The woods roared their applause and were full of mists and flying leaves. On nights such as these, the gods, as has already been pointed out, play games other than chess with the fates of mortals and the thrones of kings. It is important to remember that they always cheat right up to the end and a coach came hurtling along the rough forest track, jerking violently as the wheels bounced off tree roots. The driver lashed at the team, the desperate crack of his whip providing a rather neat counterpoint to the crash of the tempest overhead. Behind, only a little way behind and getting closer, were three hooded riders. On nights such as this, evil deeds are done. And good deeds, of course, but mostly evil on the whole. On nights such as this, witches are abroad. Well, not actually abroad. They don't like the food and you can't trust the water and the shamans always hog the deck chairs. But there was a full moon breasting the ragged clouds and the rushing air was full of whispers and the very broad hint of magic. In the clearing above the forest, the witches spoke thus. "'I'm babysitting on Tuesday,' said the one with no hat, but a thatch of white curls so thick she might have been wearing a helmet. "'For our Jason's youngest. I can manage Friday. Hurry up with the tea, love, I'm that parched.' The junior member of the trio gave a sigh and ladled some boiling water out of the cauldron into the teapot. The third witch patted her hand in a kindly fashion— "'You said it quite well,' she said. "'Just a bit more work on the screeching. "'Ain't that right, Nanny Og?' "'Very useful screeching, I thought,' said Nanny Og hurriedly. "'And I can see Goody Wemper, may she rest in peace, "'gave you a lot of help with the squint.' "'It's a good squint,' said Granny Weatherwax. "'The junior witch, whose name was Magrat Garlic, relaxed considerably.' She held Granny Weatherwax in awe. It was known throughout the Ramtop Mountains that Miss Weatherwax did not approve of anything very much. If she said it was a good squint, then McGrath's eyes were probably staring up her own nostrils. Unlike wizards, who like nothing better than a complicated hierarchy, witches don't go in much for the structured approach to career progression. It's up to each individual witch to take on a girl to hand over the area to when she dies. Witches are not by nature gregarious, at least with other witches, and they certainly don't have leaders. Granny Weatherwax was the most highly regarded of the leaders they didn't have. McGrath's hands shook slightly as she made the tea. Of course, it was all very gratifying, but it was a bit nerve-wracking to start one's working life as village witch between Granny and, on the other side of the forest, Nanny Og. It had been her idea to form a local coven. She felt it was more... Well, occult. And to her amazement, the other two had agreed, or at least hadn't disagreed much. Another? Nanny Og had said. What do we want to join an oven for? She meant a coven, Gaither. Granny Weatherwax had explained. You know, like the old days, a meeting. A knees up, said Nanny Og hopefully. No dancing, Granny had warned. I don't hold with dancing, or singing, or getting overexcited, 
or all that messing about with ointments and similar. Does you good to get out? said Nanny happily. McGrath had been disappointed about the dancing and was relieved that she hadn't ventured one or two other ideas that had been on her mind. She fumbled in the packet she had brought with her. It was her first Sabbath, and she was determined to do it right. Would anyone care for a scone? she said. Granny looked hard at hers before she bit. McGrath had baked bat designs on it. They had little eyes made of currants. The coach crashed through the trees at the forest edge, ran on two wheels for a few seconds as it hit a stone, righted itself against all the laws of balance, and rumbled on. But it was going slower now. The slope was dragging at it. The coachman, standing upright in the manner of a charioteer, pushed his hair out of his eyes and peered through the murk. No one lived up here, in the lap of the ram-tops themselves, but there was a light ahead. By all that was merciful, there was a light there. An arrow buried itself in the coach roof behind him. Meanwhile, King Varence, monarch of Lancre, was making a discovery. Like most people, most people at any rate below the age of sixty or so, Varence hadn't exercised his mind much about what happened to you when you died. Like most people since the dawn of time, he assumed it all somehow worked out all right in the end. And like most people since the dawn of time, he was now dead. He was, in fact, lying at the bottom of one of his own stairways in Lancre Castle with a dagger in his back. He sat up and was surprised to find that while someone he was certainly inclined to think of as himself was sitting up, something very much like his body remained lying on the floor. It was a pretty good body. Incidentally, now he came to see it from outside for the first time. He had always been quite attached to it, although, he had to admit, this did not now seem to be the case. It was big and well-muscled. He'd looked after it. He'd allowed it a moustache and long, flowing locks. He'd seen it had got plenty of healthy outdoor exercise and lots of red meat. Now, just when a body would have been useful, it had let him down. Or out. On top of that, he had to come to terms with the tall, thin figure standing beside him. Most of it was hidden in a hooded black robe, but the one arm which extended from the folds to grip a large scythe was made of bone. When one is dead, there are things one instinctively recognises. Hello! Berentz drew himself up to his full height, or what would have been his full height, if that part of him to which the word height could have been applied was not lying stiff on the floor and facing a future in which the only word depth could be appropriate. I am a king, mark you, he said. Was, your majesty. What? Berentz barked. I said was. It's called the past tense. You'll soon get used to it. The tall figure tapped its calcareous fingers on the scythe's handle. It was obviously upset about something. If it came to that, Berentz thought, so am I. But the various broad hints available in his present circumstances were breaking through even the mad, brave stupidity that made up most of his character, and it was dawning on him that whatever kingdom he might currently be in, he wasn't king of it.
Are you death, fellow? He ventured. I have many names. Which one are you using at present? said Varence, with a shade more deference. There were people milling around them. In fact, quite a few people were milling through them, like ghosts. Oh, so it was Felmet, the king added vaguely, looking at the figure lurking with obscene delight at the top of the stairs. My father said I should never let him get behind me. Why don't I feel angry? Glad, said Death shortly. Adrenaline and so forth, and emotions. You don't have them. All you have now is thought. The tall figure appeared to reach a decision. This is very irregular, he went on, apparently to himself. However, who am I to argue? Who indeed? What? I said, who indeed? Shut up. Death stood with his skull to one side, as though listening to some inner voice. As his hood fell away, the late king noticed that death resembled a polished skeleton in every way but one. His eye sockets glowed sky blue. Varence wasn't frightened, however. Not simply because it's difficult to be in fear of anything when the bits you need to be frightened with are curdling several yards away, but because he had never really been frightened of anything in his life, and wasn't going to start now. This was partly because he didn't have the imagination, but he was also one of those rare individuals who were totally focused in time. Most people aren't. They live their lives as a sort of temporary...